Jude. Only one chapter, right before Revelation. So last week we started a four-week series in the book of Jude, and last week we just looked at the first four verses. Tonight we're going to take the largest chunk, but we're going to be popping all around. We're going to go from verse 5 all the way through verse 16, and then two more weeks. As I said, Jude is one of two books in the New Testament written by one of Jesus' brothers. And one of the things that we know about Jude is that Jude expects his audience to have a great grasp of the Old Testament. Because especially in tonight's passage, we're going to see that he really doesn't take a lot of time to elaborate on what he's talking about. He expects his audience to know these things because he expects that they have a Again, a firm grasp of the Old Testament stories and scriptures. That's a good challenge for us as well. Something else I want to mention before we get into tonight's message is this. One of the unique features of the book of Jude, in fact, it was one of the reasons why the book of Jude, even though it was written by one of Jesus' brothers, was one of the last books that was added to the canon of scripture, the 66 books that we have today, is because Jude, Jude quoted in verse 14 from the book of Enoch, a book that is not scriptural. And many people were like, let's, you know, put the brakes on. The thing about that is this. What Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch is true. And the book of Enoch never claims to be scriptural, okay? So it... But it doesn't mean that you throw the whole thing out. It doesn't mean that there's no profit to it. It simply means that there's parts like what Jude quotes from Enoch in verses 14, 15 that are good and that are true, but it doesn't mean that the book, just by quoting the book of Enoch, that somehow that was not right. So it also tells us that Jude had a grasp of not just the Old Testament scriptures, but of other writings as well. By the way, real quickly, even though that's not what the message is about tonight, may have questions, well, how do we know what 66 books go in? Well, the Old Testament had already been established, and Jesus, when he came, put his stamp of approval on Genesis through Malachi. So if you want to know, why do we know that Genesis through Malachi was good with God? Because Jesus put a stamp of approval on Genesis to Malachi. So that takes care of the Old Testament. Then you come to the New Testament. How do we know that the books from Matthew to Revelation and no other books should go into the canon of Scripture? Well, first of all, the book had to claim to be scriptural. Okay? It had to claim to be inspired. Second, it had to be written by a apostle in the New Testament of Jesus Christ, just like it had to be written of a prophet in the Old Testament, okay? It could not contradict known scripture in any way or else it would have been thrown out. There were a lot of checks and balances that the early church used to make sure that the books that we have today are exactly the books that God wanted us to have. And I'll just end by saying this. If God can oversee the creation of the universe, if he can oversee the creation of this universe to fulfill his plan and purpose throughout all the ages, then God is certainly capable of watching over the Bible and making sure that he, we get what he wants us to get.
okay? Enough said. Let's get into Jude tonight. Uh, the reason I'm going to be bouncing around and, and I don't really have a, a, say, a normal outline where you have a few verses and it talks about this and have a few verses and it talks about this is because the way God led me into this tonight is these things are mentioned all over this passage. And so I'm just going to be going through and touching on several of them tonight. But what we see in this passage is three things. God gives warnings, God gives boundaries, and God gives us choice. And, and Jude goes back into the Old Testament, and he starts really with warning signs. We're familiar with warning signs. We have even commercials about warning signs for our health. If you have these things happening, maybe you need to get to a doctor or get to a hospital or whatever. I mean, you know, from the time I was young, I heard about the warning signs of, of a stroke or a heart attack or things like that. We understand there's certain signals that our body can start to give us to tell us that there's something greater and, and more important, if you will, something that needs our attention going on. Well, Jude wants to take that concept, if you will, of warning signs and apply it to how God has used it because I want you to, first of all, go down with me to verse 7. There's a phrase in verse 7 that I want to actually start with. Displayed as an example, okay? It literally means that God placed them on exhibit as a warning. That's what, that's what it means. God placed them on exhibit. It's like going into a museum. God says, here, I want you to be aware of these things because you can take something from this. And we know that the Bible teaches us that. Even in the New Testament, you might go, well, how can we in the New Testament age, in the church age, learn anything uh, from what happened in times way past in the Old Testament? Well, Paul even said to the Corinthians, these things were written in the Old Testament and contained in the Old Testament and now even brought over and mentioned in the New Testament for our instruction. There are things that you and I can grasp and gain from what happened a long time ago, and hopefully we're going to go through a few of those tonight. In fact, one of the things that we learn right away if you then go up to verse 5 is this. It never hurts to be repetitious. <laughs> you know... A lot of people don't like repetition, but notice what Jude says. I desire to remind you, place at the forefront of your mind certain things, even though you have been fully informed of these facts once and for all. In other words, he's writing to an audience that he knows are fully aware already of the things that he's going to talk about, but he says, I got to bring them up again. We, we got to pay attention to these again. So don't ever get tired of going back over things and going over them and going over Because first of all, that's one of the wonders of even the scriptures is that every time you go back, no matter how many times you've looked at that passage, read that passage, studied that passage, there's always something new to be gained, some new insight, some gem, if you will, that you continually uncover. And so Jude starts there. And I just want to remind us, don't ever get tired of being reminded. Don't ever get tired of going over the same things over and over again. Sometimes even we maybe have to go over those things 
to finally get it to sort of hit and stick. So that's where Jude starts. But in this passage, Jude wants to talk to us about a lot of warnings that God has given. The first one is that it says there in verse 5 that the people that God saved out of, the, out of Egypt, he destroyed those that did not believe later on. He physically delivered them from slavery, but most of them were never spiritually delivered because they never trusted in the Lord. And so there's a warning there that you and I can take. The angels, verse 6, he says, they did not keep their proper domain, but abandoned their own place of residence. He's kept now in eternal chains and darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. There is a warning there. What, what, what are these warnings telling us? That when you and I or anyone chooses to go our own way rather than God's way, it doesn't go well. There is a heavy price to pay whenever you and I or anyone throughout history says, God, I'm going to do it my way rather than following you. Over and over and over again, even in history and in Scripture, God continued to put out these examples saying, I want you to learn from people's past mistakes. But just like we learn even in our day and age, we many times don't pay attention to the mistakes that have been done previously, and we keep repeating and making the same mistakes over again. That's part of the reason why when mankind stands before the judgment one day, we will all be without excuse because God has given us plenty of warnings and plenty of examples that he's placed on exhibit even in the Bible and throughout history of how things didn't go well for those who rebelled against him. Verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about again at the end of verse 7 how he displayed them as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire or the execution of divine justice over and over and over again. Verse 11, look, Cain, he says, whoa. That word means it's a warning of impending disaster. It didn't go well for Cain. And Cain even ignored the warning given to him by God when he brought the offering that God didn't ask him to bring. God revealed what kind of offering to bring. His brother Abel brought that offering. Cain did not bring the proper offering. Cain got jealous of his brother. Uh, you know, hatred and jealousy and envy began to sort of stir in Cain's heart. And God came to him and God said, Cain, be careful because sin is crouching at the door. And, and if you allow it to have a foothold in your life, it's going to come in and it's going to do a lot of damage and it's going to cause a lot of destruction. And Cain did not heed the warning of God. And you and I know what happened. He murdered his brother, Cain. Balaam, verse 11. Balaam was this prophet in the Old Testament who cared more about profiting from the gift that God gave him than from being faithful to God. And finally, God got fed up with Balaam and had Balaam's donkey talk to him. 
because he wasn't listening to God, so he thought, well, maybe he'd listen if a donkey talked to him, you see. But Balaam is one of those that, again, tried to do it his way, and he corrupted the office of a prophet. He, he corrupted the great gift of being a prophet that God gave him because he was always seeking to, to uh, pad his own pockets. And, and it, he's really an example of even those today who use religion or use their office or use their gift or use their talents or whatever to get rich rather than to bless others and to exalt the Lord primarily. And then obviously in verse 11 you have Korah, the one who rose up against Moses and basically challenged Moses' authority. And that was God's order. And, and because he did that, God destroyed Korah. So over and over and over again, Jude is giving us examples and saying, God has given us warning that it doesn't go well when we don't follow the Lord's way. We'll come back to that in just a moment. A couple other warnings here. I want you to go back up to this section on Michael and the devil debating about Moses' body. It's a fascinating thing. We could take all night just to talk about that. But what I want you to see is this. Jude changes something when he comes to verse 8. And that is, instead of now using examples from the Old Testament, like the people saved out of Egypt, like Sodom and Gomorrah, like the angels, like Cain and Balaam and, and Korah, now he's comparing these false teachers that we talked about last week who've crept into the church as being very much like the other examples. They're trying to do things their way rather than God's way. I want you to see, though, a specific warning. Notice that it says in verse 8, these men, as a result of their dreams, their dreams, they're following subjective experiences of dreams, and not that God doesn't speak through dreams and visions, but here, notice, that there's other entities behind those dreams. They reject authority, and notice at the end of verse 8, insult the glorious ones. Who are the glorious ones? These supernatural beings that they're in contact with, but not in a good way. And what the Bible is telling us here, what Jude is telling us, what he's warning us about is, these false teachers had no respect for the supernatural beings that they were dealing with, okay? They didn't understand who it was that they were really dealing with. Maybe they denied the spiritual world completely, but they had no healthy respect for those in the spiritual world. In fact, notice in verse 10, Jude says, these men do not understand the things they slander. They, they talk and insult the, the spiritual world and all that, but they don't realize who they are dealing with. That's a warning. That's a warning to us today. There is a real spiritual world out there. And there are beings that inhabit that spiritual world that you and I better make sure that we are, are, have the full armor of God on and that we are strong in the Lord. Even Jesus taught his own followers when they were frustrated and came back and said, Lord, we can't cast out that demon. And Jesus says, 
Those kind of demons can only be come out by prayer and fasting. And you're not equipped yet to deal with those entities. And so again, here's another warning. The reality of a spiritual world, the reality of an evil spiritual world, and we better know who we're dealing with and have a respect for them before we start dabbling into that area. I have known in my ministry many Christians who have destroyed their Christian life because they dabbled in, in things like the occult and, and Satanism. I, I know Christians that, that got a hold of a copy of the Satanic Bible because they had this curiosity that they wanted to know what was in it, and they got sucked into a very dark place. Listen, I tell people this all the time, Christians this all the time, everything that you and I need to know about the darkness and the evil and, and demons and Satan is found right here. You don't need to go any further than that because you're going to really mess yourself up. And that's part of the warning here from Jude as well. Then notice another warning, verse 12. These men also are dangerous reefs at your love feasts, feasting without reverence and feeding only themselves, only caring about themselves. I want you to look especially at that phrase, dangerous reefs. Any of you that have ever went boating or out on a river or lake or whatever, understand the importance of knowing what's right underneath the surface. And it's hidden, and yet it can do a lot of damage. In fact, it can destroy the boat, it can sink the boat. And that's why those that, that man the boat and, and run boats, they need to know where the reefs are, where the hidden rocks are and all that. Why? Because they're concealed. They're, they're not apparent. And remember, Jesus even said, be careful, my sheep, of wolves in what? Sheep's clothing. And that, you know, Paul talks to the Corinthians about those who come to us as, as angels of light. And even Satan himself can appear as an angel of light. And so you and I need to be uh, greatly uh, insightful and discerning when it comes to spiritual things. And this is a warning here because they can be very dangerous and they can present a spiritual danger, especially to those who are spiritually immature or who are unwary about what they are dealing with. Finally, I, I would say the last sort of great warning here is found in his quote from the book of Enoch, verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh in descent, beginning with Adam, even prophesied of them, saying, look, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of his holy ones. By the way, that's another verse where you and I are in the Bible. Because that verse not only refers to angels, it also refers to his people. We will all come back in the second coming when Jesus comes back to judge the earth. We are in that verse. But notice, the Lord is coming, verse 15, to execute judgment on all. Notice Jude is reminding us that judgment's going to be very personal, but it's also going to be universal. Everyone outside of Christ who rejected Jesus Christ is going to be under the future judgment. So again, why is Jude telling us this? Warning. God's giving a warning. Judgment's coming, just like he did through Noah. He gave Noah a long time to preach to all those people around that judgment's coming. God has me building this ark. God's going to destroy the world with the flood. And no one listened, not because they weren't warned, but because they did not believe the word 
of God. One day, the Lord's going to come. He's going to execute judgment on all. He's going to convict every person of all their thoroughly ungodly deeds that they have committed and all the harsh words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's coming, my friends. And Jude wants us to be aware of it because so often, again, whether we are a believer or a non-believer, God throughout history and throughout the Bible gives us warnings. And Jude is saying, pay attention to the warnings. We ignore the warnings of God at our, to our own peril, just like we would ignore to our own peril the warning signs if something was going on in our body that, that it was, you know, something really... Uh, a big malfunction was going on, and we just sloughed it off. We never went to the doctor. We never got a checkup or anything. It could end up being really bad for us. Jude is trying to get us to see the same thing. God gave warning. But I want to go to these next two. I think they more apply to us, and that is God gives boundaries. In fact, before we get into that whole thing of boundaries, go back to the Gospel of Matthew with me, to Matthew chapter 7, because I think in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, obviously, much more masterfully than me, talks about this, really. And if I can get my fingers to work, I will join you in Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, because the gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. So, again, get the picture. Wide. Wide. Okay? But the gate is narrow and the way is difficult that leads to life and there are few, comparatively, who find it. A wide way, narrow way. I want you to keep those pictures in mind. Why? because it really deals even with the subject of boundaries that Jude is talking about in his book. Again, throughout the Bible and throughout history, God talks about boundaries and how it did not go well for those who went outside the boundaries that God gave them. And let me say this up front. Why does God give us boundaries? Because he wants to be a killjoy? Because he wants to take all the fun out of life? Because he, he you know, wants to, you know, hem us in and all that? No, no, no. God gives us boundaries for our own good. God knows what's best, and God knows if you truly want to be fulfilled and satisfied and enjoy life to its fullest, you stay within my boundaries. And it's not like God has like the, a lot of stuff that we can't do. I mean, go back to the story at the very beginning of the Bible of, of Adam and Eve. God said, you've got the whole garden. You can eat every tree, every, all the fruit from every tree except what? To me, that's not like a narrow boundary, right? But it was a boundary. Eat it, all, everything else, just don't eat from that one. And that was the one they ate from. And guess what? It didn't go well for Adam and Eve, did it? There are another one we could put here. Let's go down through here. So look at verse 6. It's a fascinating passage. There were angels, fallen angels, okay, who abandoned their own place designated by God 
and did not keep within their proper domain. In other words, literally, they did not stay within the limits of authority that God gave them. And because they crossed that line and they crossed that boundary, notice what? God took all their freedom away. And ever since then, they have been chained in eternal darkness waiting for the judgment. Now, I could take you back to Genesis where I think this took place. I think that they were the reference to the sons of God that in some way inhabited human men and then had sexual relationships with human women and produced a race of giants the Bible calls the Nephilim. Why were they doing that? Because the fallen angels were trying to contaminate the line of the Messiah. If they could contaminate the human race, then Jesus could never come as a human being born of a woman, which is why it is fascinating to realize that God took the human race down to eight people and started all over again, you see. That's what they did. And because they went beyond the boundary that God gave them, they've been judged. Sodom and Gomorrah, they, like everybody else, has boundaries of how God says, our, our sexual uh, should be expressed, and here's how it should be. And Sodom and Gomorrah, like many others, went beyond the boundaries that God said that should be held within. And because of that, they have been placed as an example, suffering the punishment of eternal fire. Look at other boundaries here. Uh, Go up to the argument that Michael has with the devil. This is fascinating. Now, we don't know exactly why the devil and Michael were arguing over Moses' body. It could be that the devil wanted Moses' body so that he could prop it up as an idol and people would worship it rather than God. I don't know. You're just speculating here. But here's what we do know. It says that even when Michael, which by the way, his name means who is like God. I love that. The archangel was arguing with the devil and debating with him concerning Moses' body. He did not dare to bring a slanderous judgment, but said, may the Lord rebuke you. Now, this is really a teachable moment here for all of us. Because what the Bible is telling us is even Michael the archangel stayed within his lane. And that's a phrase we hear a lot today. He did not get beyond his boundary. He did not say something to the devil, first of all, that brought him down to the devil's level. That's important too. Even though I'm sure the devil hurled verbal abuse and slander, and who knows what all he called Michael, <laughs> Michael did not show disrespect even to the devil. Now think about that. Especially in the day and age in which we live, where human beings are spewing all kinds of hatred and, and things against each other, and, and the Bible tells us that every human being is made in the image of God, and Michael was an example of someone that even to the devil said, 
I'm not going to slander you. I'm not going to rebuke you because I don't have that authority even as the archangel of God. That's God's place. Only God can give you what you deserve. And so he left it up to God. So here's a positive example of not going outside the boundaries. Now, obviously, the devil, long time ago, is an example of someone who went outside the boundaries. God had a great place for Lucifer. Lucifer was not satisfied with the place and the honor and the privilege that God gave to him. So Satan said, I want to be independent of you, God, for the rest of eternity. I don't want to go your way. I want to do my own thing. And he went outside the boundary. Cain, God revealed to Cain and Abel and to Adam and Eve and to all the family, here's the sacrifices that I want you to bring to me. God always told his people what he expected in worship. Cain thought, no, I'm going to bring what I want. And I'm just going to trust that it'll be acceptable to God outside what God prescribed. So over and over again, you see this pattern again throughout the whole passage of Scripture, going outside of what God intended. Balaam, same thing. Korah, God said, Moses isn't perfect, but Moses is my leader, and he is your authority. And Korah, by challenging that authority of Moses, was challenging not so much Moses, but God's order of things. And in a sense, he was setting aside or disregarding God's order. That's exactly what Jude tells us. Look up in verse 8. It says, these men, these now teachers who've crept into the church, who are undermining the word of God as a result of their dreams defiling the flesh, reject authority. Whose authority? Ultimately, God's. They're saying, God, I know better than you. And over and over again throughout the Bible and throughout history, you see the same pattern. God, we, we know better than you. We're, we're going to do it our way. And again, examples and warnings Every time somebody chose to go their own way rather than God's way, it did not go well for them. Let's go to the last one. God gives us a choice. Because to me, this may be the most important of tonight. When you think about, let's start with verse 5. All those that were saved out of Egypt, think with me for just a moment. What did those people experience? What did they see? What did they hear? I mean, these were people that saw the Red Sea part. These people saw all ten plagues that God placed upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh. They saw the pillar of fire and the cloud. They saw God's presence manifested in supernatural ways. They saw the water of the Nile turn to blood. They, they saw all of that, okay? Experience. 
And yet, all that experience with God did them no good. Think about the angels. Did you ever... The, the angels who fell, I mean, they were as close to God in proximity as anybody. They, they were in heaven. There's no better place to be, right? I mean, you want to talk about experiencing God, seeing him for who he really is, and yet they still chose not to follow God. Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what's interesting about Sodom and Gomorrah is that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah happened only a couple hundred years after the Great Flood. In fact, Noah had just died 100 years earlier. And one of Noah's sons was still living when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. So I say that to say again, talk about warnings and all this. It's like even what these people had already heard of and experienced and had passed down to them didn't make a difference. Think of how God revealed himself to Cain. Who was Cain's parents? Adam and Eve, the people who walked with God in the Garden of Eden. Cain couldn't have had a better upbringing to understand the reality of God. And God even went directly to Cain and spoke to him. Same thing with Korah. Same thing with Balaam. God had direct revelation to all these people. You know, one of the things I've heard throughout, you know, my years in church, even from Christians as well, if, if God would just, you know, if I would just have more experiences and, and, and I could just experience God more and, and all of this, and, and I'm not saying that's bad, but what we have here, even in Scripture and throughout history, is all these entities, whether they were angels or human beings or whatever, who had seen miracles and heard from God directly and all of that, and it didn't make a difference. Why? Because God gives everyone, including the angels, a choice. Because God, at the, in, at the very end of it all, wants only those who want him, who desire him. And so that goes back to, in a sense, one's heart. And one's heart for God must be shaped from the inside out. If, if you and I don't take anything, and I, I realize tonight's message is not a typical message even for me, if you don't take anything from this passage of Scripture, I hope you'll take that with you. Because that's really what our life with God and our worship and everything is all about. You see, so often throughout e even biblical history, people were so enamored with externals. And I'm not saying that externals and experiences and all that, that there's not a place for that. But you and I aren't going to automatically have this love for God and this heart for God and this desire for God simply because we've engaged with God and we experience him. That's why today you can have people who sit in churches and experience God and hear God and see God and, and, and watch him work and all that, but 
their lives never change and they remain unchanged and there's no transformation taking place. Why? Because just because someone is in proximity to God and experiences God doesn't mean they ever have a heart for God. Think of the person that this book is similar to. Jude is short for Judas. No one could have had a better environment than Jude, Judas. He walked with Jesus for three years, saw his miracles, heard his teachings, whatever. But all that experience never brought his heart any closer to Jesus. So he betrayed him. Oh, and by the way, Judas is also a great example of something else Jude talks about, which is we got to be careful of the hidden reefs. Because remember when Jesus that night in which he was going to be betrayed said, oh, one of you at the table is going to betray me? And not one of the other 11 disciples thought it was Judas. Because we can't see into a person's heart. So externally, Judas just looked like he was just one of the, the band, one of the team. And yet his heart was very, very, very far from God, even though he had all those experiences. Why is this important for us tonight and in the days ahead? Because we've got to be careful that we don't emphasize or overemphasize experience and think that experience is the end-all, be-all, even with God. Because over and over again, throughout history and in Scripture, you have examples of those like the angels that could not get any closer to God, who could not have experienced glory any more than the angels did. They were in heaven, and yet they said, nope, we're out of here. We're out of here. And, and, and why, I guess, I am very sensitive about that is because I want to make sure that, at least at our church, that we are aware of that. We, we don't want to be a people that simply experience God but never have a heart change. And heart change can only come from the inside out, not from the outside in. It can't, no matter what externals are going on, that doesn't change the heart, you see. Now, we can create, and we should create an environment where God is experienced and where we feel God and see God move and all that. That's, that's what it's all about. But we better make sure that all of us are not just satisfied with experiencing the experience without making sure, where's my heart in all this? And is the experiences that I'm going through as a Christian drawing my heart towards God and closer to God or not at all? Am I even unchanged or am I getting further away from God? And that's why every Wednesday and Sunday here at the Oasis, you know, we can go through the motions of singing these songs of, of great worship to the Lord and yet remain unchanged and have no effect on our heart. We, we can be in the word of God that is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword 
and we can expose ourselves to the word of God and yet not have a heart change. So Jude ultimately is saying this. By giving us all the warnings and by telling us about the boundaries and all of that, he really brings it back to this. And that is that every one that he uses as an example, whether it's the people who were saved out of Egypt, the angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Korah, Balaam, all them. He says, they all had unbelievable experiences with God. Unbelievable encounters with God. But it never changed their heart. It never shaped their heart to love the Lord. It ended up being about them. They went their own way. And obviously, in the end, it's not going to be good for them. But that also emphasizes my final point. God not only gives us warnings, God not only gives us boundaries, God gives us a choice. And every one of us, even here tonight, we have a choice tonight. We could let our time in the house of God Worshiping God and in the word of God change our heart and shape our heart from the inside out. Or we can come here on Wednesday night and we can walk out after that wonderful time of worship and time in God's word and have it make no difference in our life at all. And I think what Jude then beyond that is warning us about is that if we develop that habit of being unresponsive in heart to God, then it becomes harder and harder or maybe easier and easier to not respond in heart and to not allow God to change our heart when we experience him. So let's pray. God, I thank you tonight that even though this was not the most edifying passage in the Bible. God, it, it is a necessary one. There's some good reminders in this passage tonight. Reminders of the past, reminders of history, reminders of those, Lord, who encountered you in really personal and profound ways, and yet it never changed their heart. God, I pray that we would be aware of that at all times and not become a people that just go through the motions of life with you, experiencing you in great ways, hearing from you, seeing you work and move, praising you and exalting you in worship, opening up your word and seeing wonderful and marvelous things that you've prepared for us, and yet never really making a difference at the heart level. God, experiences are wonderful, and we need them. Engaging with you is amazing. But God, help us to realize that when we have those experiences and when we engage with you, it's for the purpose of our heart transformation. 
It's to make our heart more like your heart. It's to give us the heart of Jesus and a heart for Jesus. And that's something that no externals can do. That's got to come from our heart and our choice. We either want that or we don't. And I always pray, God, no matter where we are in our walk with you, that we always want more of you. As we sung about tonight, Lord, I, I hope we can always say, give me Jesus. Give me more of Jesus. Because, Lord, we can never have too much of you. God, I, I think about these examples, and I honestly, I feel so sorry for all those who thought that it would be better to go their own way than your way. That they didn't see, Lord, the tremendous love and the boundaries that you placed in their life. That they never found their ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in you, but sought it in other things and in other ways. God, always help us to see that our greatest fulfillment and satisfaction throughout eternity can only be found in you and through you, God. You're it. And so, Lord, may we choose you every day when there's so many other choices we could make, God. Help us to choose you above everything else. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Come back next week.